This morning, we're going to learn together about our unity, which makes Christ visible. Uh, this is a lesson which is especially important and practical because we live in a divided world. Would you agree with me about that? A world in which people split up into groups of every kind. We draw lines, we build walls, and we gather with those people who are the same, and we keep out those who are different. Uh, we unite around some shared idea or style or image or value and then divide from people who are different. If you look for this, you can see it pretty much everywhere. Uh, 1986, Middletown High School North, the cafeteria. That's the place where I first saw this in, in very stark relief. There were the jocks and the preppies, the nerds, the metalheads, also sometimes called dirtbags by themselves, don't take offense, and the skaters and surfers. And the divisions were as plain as the differences in clothing styles around each table. Between us all, there were lines drawn, there were walls constructed that though invisible were nonetheless impenetrable. You were with your group and you had nothing to do with any other group. It was you and it was everyone else. And that's how it worked in high school. In my freshman and sophomore year, I was a skater and a surfer. My best friend Jason, he was a skater. On Friday nights, we knew what we were doing Every single Friday night, we were out searching for a parking lot that was well lit and dry. And we also knew that on that very night, the jocks would be with their tribe at their parties. And if you asked us, we would have nothing to do with them. We were glad that we weren't invited. We were proud to be who we were. And then, then junior year, at the beginning of the year, my best friend, the skater, tried out for the, for the track team. And I prayed to God that he would break his leg. <laughs> but he was a fast runner and he made the team. And so then there was the Friday night where he was not skating with me anymore and he was at the party. And he would have told you and I would have told you that we wanted nothing to do with each other. Everyone in the same group says that. But the truth is that there was a part of every one of us that knew something was wrong. We knew it. Maybe not that we wanted to be at the party, but that we wanted to be connected with each other because there was a part of every one of us that knew the divisions that we used to reject each other were wrong. They were inhuman. We are different. And we divide ourselves up according to our similarities to be with people who are like us and to keep the people who are not like us away. We're afraid of the differences. We're ignorant about what it means to be that person instead of this person. We're insecure and we try to find all kinds of ways to make ourselves feel more secure than we are. It happens in school. It happens at your office and in your families. It happens within towns divided by railroad tracks and between towns divided economically with superior and inferior school systems. It happens between races between political parties, between nations. It happens between religions. Everywhere you look, people are dividing up and separating themselves. And if we're honest, we'd have to admit it happens within religions too. Don't you know that? The history of the Christian church has been marked by seemingly 
endless divisions. Some of them mundane and minor. Some of them literally deadly. Sometimes peaceful, sometimes eruptive. The church ends up looking more like my high school cafeteria in 1986 than a community of people that are united and gathered together by Jesus. And you know, outsiders see it as plain as day. Also in 1986, XTC releases a very popular song, Dear God. Do some of you remember that? Dear God, sorry to disturb you, but I feel I should be heard loud and clear. All these people that you made in your image, see them fighting in the street because they can't make opinions meet about God? I can't believe in you. When we divide up like everyone else, we do not make Jesus visible. Our tendency to separate makes God unbelievable to those who look on and something in us knows that it's wrong. And, and, and can you acknowledge that with me? Not that everyone's ideas are equally valid, but there's something deeply inhuman about the walls that we build to keep people away from us who are different. Doesn't the part of your heart wish that they weren't there? Not them, but the walls? Are you alive? <laughs> the reason that the walls are wrong, please hear me now, because this is what I want to show you this morning. I want to teach you this. They're wrong because in Christ... God has done something that unites all of us more profoundly than everything which divides us. And our responsibility as people who have been awakened to faith in Jesus Christ, who know of God's deliverance in the anointed one, his Messiah, for all of us, it is our responsibility to accept and maintain the gift that God has given which unites us. And that will be our subject this morning. I want you to look with me at Paul's guidance in Ephesians 4, verse 2. This will be a review for those of us who've been here week after week, but for those of you who are visiting, this is our theme where Paul teaches us how to make Jesus visible. Listen to what he says in verse 2. Lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called. I want to pause here. Paul believed everyone had been called to this calling. And what, what everyone was responsible for was leading a life. In Greek, it's a word peripeteo, which means walk a path. And Paul here says, walk a path in a way that's worthy of your calling. By that, he means in a way that measures up with what God created you for. And whether you know it or not, you were made to know the truth, embrace it, and then walk through life in a way that your life actually shows the truth. And how you do that is what follows with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. These are the hallmarks of what it looks to walk a life that is genuine. These are the contours, the characteristics of a life that is actually making Jesus visible, humble instead of arrogant, gentle instead of rough, patient instead of explosive and always running off down your own way, bearing with others in love instead of giving up on staying with people who are difficult and challenging. These are uh, the content of our messages behind us. I do encourage you, if you've not seen them, to go online and, and, and review. Uh, see what God might teach you there. Uh, Paul goes on in his list to add this. Making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, this is our subject for this morning. Now, Paul teaches those folks in Ephesus, as I hope he will teach us, 
that it's our responsibility to receive and then live out of a gift which God has given. Let me try to say in the most concise way what Paul says here. Beneath every difference by which we justify our dividing up from one another, there exists a deeper reality in which we are united to one another. And this is a personal statement about you and about us and about our nation, about every collection we can gather into. According to Paul, there's a unity that is not the result of anything which we have done, but rather a miraculous gift given by the Holy Spirit for our benefit and for the benefit of the world we are actually united to one another. Even with all of our differences, our calling is to work as hard as we can to diligently protect and preserve this gift of unity which God has given to us. There's a lot there in what I just said. Let's take our time and narrow in on the elements of this phrase to see how we can learn what Paul is teaching. First, Paul describes our unity with this little phrase as being of the Spirit. In Greek, that little particle of, that does an awful lot of work. Here, it means that which originates from or is sustained by. The object of the Spirit. The Spirit is that which, uh, from which our unity originates and by which our unity is maintained. And when Paul says Spirit here, he has in mind the Holy Spirit. Some of you who have been followers of Jesus for a long time, you know that the Christian way of thinking of God is that when Jesus was crucified and then rose again from the dead and ascended into heaven to be with the Father, the Father and the Son sent the Holy Spirit as God's empowering presence to be with us now. If this is news to you, I'm glad I get to give you this news. The way Christians believe uh, God is present right now is in a spiritual way inside of anyone who has faith. Isn't that amazing? I would say the part of you that recoils at ugly exclusivism, when people put up walls that you know deep in your heart are wrong, it's the Holy Spirit saying to you, that's not right. When you've been shattered and broken because someone pushed you away because of differences that aren't as deep as the similarities, that's the Spirit saying to you, that's not what I want. But here Paul is teaching that the unity that comes and is given comes not from us. That it's not our responsibility to make it. We can't. That we don't have to try ourselves to make something happen which is beyond our capacity to make. If I had gone and sat at the wrong table, oh, there's nothing I could have done about it. I'd be in trouble. And I knew it. Don't you know it? But here Paul is teaching the folks in Ephesus that only God can do what God has done And that's why Paul does not tell them that they have to make unity, but rather, here's the second part of the phrase, maintain it. Think carefully about the meaning of maintain. They are not responsible for creating unity. They don't have to establish or achieve or attain it. Their calling, on the other hand, is to do everything within their power to maintain it. That means something that has been given as a gift. Now, you have to watch over it. You have to offer protection. Imagine a prison guard keeping watch over someone who has been detained. That's actually what the verb maintain in Greek means here. They are to work hard at keeping something special which has been given and which will be prone to escape them like a prisoner wants to flee unless they are careful to guard it. 
What the Spirit has given you is precious, but it will want to run away as soon as you find yourself in an environment where you're supposed to dress like those people and not them. Think like those people and not the other ones. Speak like them. Vote like them. Believe like them. Behave like them. The gift that God has given will want to flee and you'll want to go back into your own little bunker. Don't you know it? Yeah? I need to know that you're alive. Please help me. Yes. But now on to the gift that's been given. And this is critical because there is an easy way to misunderstand. The gift which is given is unity. And there's lots of ways to get this wrong. And the church has and people in the world has have. Excuse me. First, unity here literally means, listen to this, being one singular thing altogether comprised of many components, distinct from one another, and different in many ways, but brought together into a singular whole so that you are connected meaningfully with one another, together in a sense which is deeper than any of the ways that you're separated from one another. The deepest truth about you, even though you may not see it, is that you are one altogether. Now, here's where we have to be careful. Unity does not mean uniformity. Unity does not mean everyone dresses and behaves the same way and has the same interests like everybody sitting at the same lunch table. In, the, in, in fact, and people who know the New Testament well will know this from reading it. In fact, in the earliest churches, there were many movements that developed that sought uniformity. Okay, in, in, in Corinth, if you know the letter of 1 Corinthians, in Corinth, you can read about it on your own. In, in chapter 12, you'll see there that there were some people who had spiritual gifts. They could speak with holy speech, with, with uh, inspired speech. Glossolalia, they spoke in tongues. And this group made their own lunch table and said, nobody who doesn't have this gift is allowed to sit at our table. Not literally, but you follow me? Okay? They actually said, we don't need other people. And, and, and that happened there. It happened in, in, Rome, in, in Rome. There were people who had different ideas about which days are the ones that are holy and they disagreed or which uh, festivals should we keep celebrating. This happened in the book of Acts. You can read about this. There were people who had different ideas about what you could and could not eat. And on the basis of these differences, they were like freshmen in high school separating out from each other and Paul hated it so much he excoriated them in writing. That's a $5 word, excoriate. You got that for free, all right? <laughs> He tore them apart. Why? Because the gift from God was not uniformity, but rather the community needed differences. Like a body needs both eyes and ears because it can hear the right thing, but if it can't see where to go, it's useless. Uh, like a body needs feet and hands because the hands can do work, but only when the feet get them there. These body parts are different, but they're brought together by Jesus. They are not uniform, but they are united. And, and the reason that Paul addressed the folks in Ephesus then, uh, just like we need this address here now, is because we live in a world where people will constantly want to be dividing up from each other. Uh, they did it then. Uh, people around us do it. We do it. We do it out, out in the world, but we do it in the church too. We do it in our hearts with different people. And, and, and the, the gift that the Spirit has given is a unity that is deeper than everything which divides us, even those things which are important which divide us. There's a unity that we have which is deeper. In Paul's world, I want to give uh, a real context to what he said here. I want you to grasp this in the way that his first readers would have had to grasp it. So here's some history. In the first century when Paul wrote these words about unity, the world divided itself up into all kinds of groups. The three most sort of well-accepted and dominant were the groups of slaves, 
and free, the groups of female and male, and the groups of, of Gentile and Jew. Uh, and Paul grew up in an environment where everyone accepted these divisions. Everyone who was a slave, either because uh, he was captured in wartime or sold himself into service or was born into it, he would have always been socially separated from everyone who was free. Uh, it would have been quite plain that, that the slave was beneath the free, without equal rights or privileges, unable to decide for himself. Instead, in all things, he was subject because of his slavery uh, to the decisions made about him by those who were superior, the free. Everyone knew and accepted and respected this division. The slave was here and the free was there. Uh, it was virtually the same in the first century uh, with the divisions between female and male. Uh, uh, just in virtue of their physiology, women were beneath men who were above them because of their gender. Not only distinct physiologically, but comprehensively subordinated to men like slaves in relationship to the free. It was the same for men and women. Especially meaningful to Paul when he wrote the letter to the Ephesians would have been the distinctions between Jew on the one hand and Gentile on the other. Uh, unlike the other two divisions, the Gentiles, or Greeks sometimes called they were in one large circle and theologically distinguished from the Jew who was in another circle in virtue of their relationship to God. And here's where Paul would have grown up believing and trusting that the Jews, as the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, were close where the Gentiles were far. Because God elected Abraham. They were members of the household of God because of God's gift to Moses. They possessed the word of God in the law. They were given the ordinances and the ways to true life, God's promises and the hope of deliverance through Messiah. And it was so. And this was the Jew. And then there were everyone else, the Gentiles. They were distinct being without the Messiah and, and the hope of his deliverance. They were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, separated from the great inheritance that belonged to the family. They were strangers to the covenant and the promise without hope and without God in the world. All of these distinctions, the distinctions with slave and free, slave here, free there, women here and men there, Gentiles here and Jews there, they were widely accepted in the environment in which Paul lived and breathed so that between these two there were, was an impassable divide, a barrier not to be crossed like a great impenetrable and insurmountable wall forever keeping them separate from one another. We live in a different time, don't we? But don't we have walls just like this in our own time? And we may wish it were not true, but outside of the church in many obvious ways and even inside of the church, we build walls. That's who we are. We draw lines. We build boats and get in them, lifeboats. And we want everybody who's not where we are to get out so we have the space. Um, it is true that we divide up socioeconomically, don't we? We don't have maybe the same kind of slavery, but don't we distance ourselves from people who are economically different? Yes or no? We do it on both sides, don't we? And, and maybe we've made lots of progress in gender equality in many ways, but we, we just have to look at the news to see the temperature of the world around us is there are still miles to go there, yes? And, and of course we div divide up religiously and, and we still are violent and, and aggressive. And not only between religions, but if we're honest with ourselves, and, and I have to be honest that this is a bit embarrassing sometimes, we do it between, uh, within religions too. And, and you do it and I do it, we all do it. Here we are in our church. 200 yards away, there's another one. And we never talk to each other. 
And then you just have to go another 200 yards to find three or four more. And we may not say it, but we may have reasons to look down on each other and draw lines. And I'm not just putting you in this group. I do it too, and I'm ashamed of it. Now, we don't have to make ourselves united. We have to maintain the unity which has been given, which raises the question now very directly and emphatically, what is it that unites us? What is the ground that we are given to stand on so that we stop pushing each other away and instead embrace that which truly brings us together? And here, I want you to know that the, the answer to the question of unity has everything to do with one singular figure alone, and it is the figure of Jesus Christ. And the truth that energized Paul to leave behind those three worlds of divisiveness so that he would say, with his own pen he says this in Galatians, that in Christ there's no longer slave and free. There's no longer Jew and Greek. There's no longer male and female. Those categories are altogether gone and in their place God has made one new humanity to replace them all. The fact that made him say that is the truth that Jesus Christ is the wall breaker that he has come into the world and he has seen all of the walls that we build and he's come and said, I will break them down even though it will kill me to do it. And he has in fact given himself to be broken so that the walls which separate us can be shattered and broken as well. Now you might think, is there anything that distinguishes us from each other? Absolutely. Does it matter what I believe and how I behave? Of course it does. But that's not the primary thing. The main thing which unites us is what God has done in Jesus to shatter the walls that we put up, listen now, to our own detriment. They hurt us. And if we're successful at building a wall and putting ourselves on the right side, and maybe we will be, I promise you that what we will one day find is that we're on the side where God in Christ is not. And we'll have walled ourselves off from the grace and mercy that he wants to give us when we let go of our decisions to separate so that we can truly embrace the truth that we are one. We're brought together by his God-given grace and mercy. And we'll see that in a moment. We have to embrace the unity and that's what Paul's given us to do. One more, one more potential misunderstanding before we get to the content of that unity and that's what I really want you to see. It is the perpetual mistake that Christians will make to go on saying, okay, Jesus has broken down the walls and now we're united and then immediately to begin behaving as if what really unites us is what we believe and how we behave as Christians. And the truth about both of those things is that while they're important, it is neither one of them that unites us. And I want you to dwell on what I've just said. If it jars you a little bit, fine, be shaken. But we are not united because we all believe the same things. That's not what unites us. Neither are we united because we behave in the same way. That's not what unites us. And I don't make the mistake of believing I don't care at all about proper doctrine, about orthodox belief. That's like a $3 word, okay? I care about it so much that I've given my life for the last two decades to trying to teach people the right way to think about God. I know it's extremely important to believe the right things rather than the wrong things. But I want you to understand this morning that it is not having the right beliefs that unite us together. Do you hear that? And that's a great thing because every time someone is absolutely sure they have the right belief, sometime later they grow and they mature and God's spirit helps them see that they still have a long way to go. It's also not how we behave, 
And we'd very much like that in the church, maybe especially in our own time, to have categories of behavior that are disunited from us. They're the ones who do this thing and that thing, and we're the ones who do the right things. This is proper praxis, okay? Excuse me, ethics. We want right ethics, and that's like $2, all right? It's getting cheaper as we go. Pretty soon I'm gonna... (laughs) That's another thing we wanna say. If you don't do it like we do it, we're not with you. You know, in the 16th century... Christians were so divided about how to baptize people that they were killing people who baptized like I'm gonna baptize a little bit later on. And that's not where our unity is either. Here, our unity is established again in Jesus Christ. Uh, for Wherever we are economically, wherever we are racially, wherever we are in our beliefs even. And this is, it doesn't mean belief doesn't matter and we'll get into this especially next week. Uh, it doesn't mean behavior doesn't matter. It just means that what unites us is as deep as the love of God in Jesus Christ is. For whom? For the whole entire world. For every man and every woman who ever existed and who will ever exist, there is a reality that unites us profoundly more deeply than anything we could ever ask or imagine in terms of belief or behavior. And there are three ways in which Paul very clearly and deftly exposes these in his writings in Ephesians chapter chapter two, and one at a time, I want to take you through them. And this I want you to grasp today. Uh, Here, first and foremost, we are united in that we are all lost. We are united. Our unity consists in, it's comprised of, it's held together in the fact that we are all united in the same desperate plight apart from God. If you thought, I'm the only one who's as desperate as I am, welcome to the one boat that we're all in if we're all in a boat together. It is the boat that tells us emphatically that not some of us, but all of us are utterly hopeless and in need of being rescued. This is our shared existential reality in which we are fully united. Apart from God, though alive, we are all in a sense dead. And that is the first truth which ignites It unites all of us, no exceptions. If I'm speaking too fast, you can watch this back online and I think you can slow it down. Is that possible? (laughs) I've just got a lot to say. In verse one of chapter two, here's how Paul establishes this fact that we're all lost. Listen to these words from God's word. You were dead through the trespasses and sins in which you once lived. Both of those yous in Greek are uh, emphatic and they're plural. Paul imagines every man and woman ever who could hear or read these and he's saying something about all of us following the course of this world, following the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that, the spirit that is now at work among those who are disobedient. Please, let's slow down here. The, 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 there are metaphors that Paul uses in these uh, verses that are vivid and they're very instructive. The trespasses and sins in which you once lived in Greek, that phrase once lived is the same as early or later in, in Ephesians 4, it's in which you walked. In Greek, it says, in which you once walked, employing uh, the metaphor of the wrong path. Let that metaphor sink in for a moment. Life is a journey, and we're all on the wrong path. There was a line that you should not have crossed. You went over it anyway. That's what trespasses means. There was a right way to go for your own good, and you went off in a different way, missing the right way. Has anyone in here ever done that? And it was horrible for you. That's what sin means. You walk on the wrong path. That's what Paul is saying here. It's a good metaphor, right? Uh, Then there's the metaphor of giving yourself over to the wrong master so that you're being mastered by someone who deep down hates you instead of loves you. And don't we all know what that's like? 
It's harder to see this in English, but following the course of this world and following the ruler of the power of the air in both verses, the verb follow means subjecting yourself to in the same way a slave subordinates himself to the master. The world around you has become your master, Paul is saying. The deceiver, the devil, Satan has become your master. That's the one who is the power of the ruler of the air. And I don't care if you don't believe in the devil at all. You look at the world and you say, there's a power that's malevolent. And too many people have given themselves over to that power. And that's what Paul's saying here. And then there's the, the metaphor of your spirit, your inner uh, conscience and will and, and the invigorating power within you being disobedient so that you are uh, trusting yourself in the wrong direction rather than the right in direction. That's the inclination away from God to trust him with your own actions which you were meant to toward doing whatever you want so that you are disobedient instead of obedient. And don't we know about that? All three of these fill out Paul's startling assertion at the start there that you were dead. Dead. And you know how many degrees of dead there are? Just one. There's not a little dead, but not as dead as that person. There's not. And, and this, you can reject this belief if you want, but you are rejecting what the Bible says about you if you reject the truth that we're all lost. We're dead. We're as good as dead, all of us. Um, to make that point crystal clear, look at the next words Paul writes. All of us. Who? All of us. What does all mean? All of us. All of us once lived among them in the passions of our flesh, following the desires of flesh and senses. And we were by nature children of wrath, just in case we forgot who. Who? Like everyone else. Do you see it there? He starts and finishes it with this universal, uh, that we're all at the same lunch table. We're all lost. And that's the first thing that we must uh, accept. Listen, there's a second thing. But before we go forward, it will be your freedom and your deliverance to stop trying to be so morally perfect compared to everyone else and accept that even though you believe and behave as you know you ought to, you are utterly free from having to make of yourself something that you're not apart from God. Because apart from him, we're all lost no matter what. But then here's the second truth. And this is equally true about every man and woman who's ever lived on planet earth. We are all rescued. And I, listen, I know how I wrote that. It's not true that we all might be rescued. The truth about us is that we all have been. Some of us believe and therefore we are learning to experience it and our lives are defined by the truth that we've been rescued. Others of us don't believe it and we reject it and therefore our lives go on as if we are always still lost. But the truth about all of us, which we can never change, is that Jesus Christ died for all of us. And when he did that, he rescued us. He became the one who was lost and went to hell so that we ourselves would have been truly deeper than all of our resistance of it rescued by him. So that is the second fact which unites us that we are all equally uh, against all odds and, and in the same impossibly fortuitous position of having become the objects of God's love. In Christ, miraculously rescued from becoming uh, lost altogether and, 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 and lost to him and to ourselves and to the world around us in hell. Our experience does not undo the reality that is deep down there where it is true. That in Christ you've been rescued. That in Christ you've been made alive. Not by anything you've done but because of God's unconditional benevolence. This is a second fact which unites us all, no exceptions. 
We can talk next week about how it becomes a reality in people's lives. I want to. But here we must listen to to Paul's words, God's word in verse four. Look at what he says. But God, who is rich in mercy out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. If you think this is too uh, emphasizing the, the realized Uh, reality of God's salvation in Christ too much, read Colossians 1 and pay close attention to there uh, how Paul describes God's victory over evil in Christ, that he's rescued all of creation. Or or read 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and when you get to verse 14, read it very carefully. Paul says, we are convinced that since one died for all, therefore all have died. And what Paul believes is that when Christ died on the cross, your old self, with all of its divisiveness and superiority, with all of your impatience and your greed and your malevolence and and my malevolence and my pettiness as a preacher who speaks about this stuff and shows he forgets it the next day, Paul believes that when Christ died, that old me was crucified. Are you sick of a part of you? Are some of you sick of all of you? It's dead. Paul believes that it died and that was your rescue. And when Christ came up out of the grave, just like one of our own will come up out of this water shortly, he was raised to new life and everyone who was in him is also raised to new life. What should you do? Believe it. Accept his love and mercy and then what is true about you, which is that you're rescued because it's true of everyone, it will become a lived reality for you. So you will live as a rescued person. And by the way, you can go on resisting God's rescue forever. Don't do it. You can. Why would you? Man, I'm getting into it. (laughs) Here's what happened to you when Christ died and was raised. This is verse six. And he's raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. If you don't feel it at all, what you need to do is let go of everything that keeps you away from God. And, and say, God, would you help me recognize that the true me is there? I need it. And he's done this. This is so magnificent. He's done this so that in the ages to come, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Maybe God's kindness and immeasurable grace, which you could never fathom, it's too deep and too high, maybe it won't be felt by you for a while. But here you're invited to believe that you're rescued and wait until you feel it. That's the second thing that unites us. There's another thing, and and this one I'll be brief about, but I'll unfold this. Every time you're with me, I'll try to live out of this in my speech. The third thing which unites us is we are all on mission. Uh, Many of us are on the wrong mission. And we can go ahead and resist the mission that is ours because though we were lost, God has rescued us. But the mission that we're invited on now is to accept the true reality about who we are and then one step after another serve God in the good lives that he's given us in a way that what becomes true of us is that everywhere we are going, we are making Jesus visible because we're all about doing the good things which God saved us to do. Uh, The way Paul puts this in Ephesians is very clear. Verse eight, for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the results of works so that no one may boast. This is his way of saying, God did this out of his free grace. You don't take credit for it. Stop 
feeling proud of yourself because you're at the right lunch table as opposed to the wrong one. That's what he means by no one can boast. And then he adds, we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life again in Greek for us to walk in. That's Paul's way of saying all of us equally are saved by God so that we can walk in these good works which were in God's mind before he even made us so that we would walk in them. And now here, I want you to consider this about yourself. You, apart from God, utterly lost, hopeless, forever. You, because of what God did in Christ, freely invited right now to accept the rescue that has been won by you by the sovereign of the universe when God in Christ became a man and died the death of a criminal in your behalf. You're free. You're rescued. And now you are invited on mission. And who do I mean when I say you? Literally, I mean everybody. Because we're united. And it is our responsibility to do everything within our power to maintain that unity. How will we do it? That's the subject for next week. I think this is important enough to spend next week on it. How we maintain the unity in the bond of peace. Let's thank God for the gift of his word and and for the gift of this unity and ask for his help. God, we love you and we thank you for uniting us in that though we were all equally lost, we have all been rescued by your grace. God, would we please accept and believe it so that through this faith, the grace becomes a reality in us and awakens us to new life. God, we love you and we thank you for every opportunity you give us to move forward in faith. God, pour your Holy Spirit on us now this morning so that each of us will move forward in unity, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.